Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note from the foundation, we're working on our anxiety and depression codex. The goal here is to go through you know about 5,000 resources, books, lectures, interviews, peer-reviewed papers, etc., and create a, uh, a curated low-cost and no-cost resource for people suffering from depression and anxiety or people that know people that are, uh, that would show them every possible treatment uh, out there in the literature. That's the whole goal. Uh, so if you want to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Ben Pring. We're going to talk about his book called Monster. The Tough Love Letter on Taming the Machines that Rule Our Jobs, Lives, and Future. Uh, he's the Vice President, uh, what's called the Head of Thought Leadership and Managing Director of Cognizance Center for the Future of Work. So, uh, Ben, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. Tell me a bit about your background. How did you come to work uh, for this this organization and how did you come to uh, you know, author of the book Monster? Yeah. Well, I've been in tech all my life, in technology, working in different kind of aspects of the technology industry, which in the last you know, 30, 40 years has become a huge industry. Uh, I've worked for Cognizant, which is a big technology services and consulting company for about 10 years. I started this group called the Center for the Future of Work when I joined Cognizant. Prior to that, I worked for a company called Gartner, who are a leading firm of analysts about technology. And, and I've sort of worked in um, uh, management consulting and, and professional services all around technology for 35 odd years. So I've always been in tech. I've always liked tech. I've always been interested in science fiction, the kind of future, what's around the river bend. And uh, in the last few years, we've written a few books about the, the rise of things like artificial intelligence and big data and leading edge technologies. And this new book, as you mentioned, Monster, 
is really kind of looking at perhaps some of the darker sides, the the less positive aspects of technology, which very much are kind of in this realm of, as you mentioned in your introduction, mental health, the role of addiction. You know, tech is, is addictive to a lot of people. Tech's taking a lot of people down kind of dark rabbit holes. And we as people, my co-author, Paul Oregon, myself, you know, as people who love technology, you've always worked in technology, believe in the sort of positive power of technology. We became concerned a few years ago that tech seemed to be taking us off the rails a little bit and we wanted to to examine that steer into that think about how we can keep tech in a good place rather than allow it to you know seemingly continue to to derail us and uh well what, what does that mean like in what ways is tech helping and in which way is, is tech uh kind of hurting us yeah well, I mean, obviously, you know, we're we're having this conversation on a tech platform, which is amazing, which didn't exist 20 years ago. Cloud computing, the internet, all of these kind of inventions the last couple of decades. We People have been managing to continue to work through the pandemic because of technology. And that's wonderful. And that's, you know, an example of a great aspect of technology. But at the same time, you know, the, the darker, deeper, less positive sides of technology the fact that a lot of people, their sense of, of their own psychology, of their own worth, are being ne- negatively affected by the fact that they're kind of addicted to social media or they're on the phones too long. And I'm sure you've covered on your podcast before, you know, rates of suicide amongst teenagers have exploded in the last decade or so because so many kids are living in this kind of screen-based world where the whole notion of FOMO, you know, fear of missing out is huge and bullying and trolling is a huge problem. Body dysmorphia is a huge problem. There's a whole generation of kids who've been brought up and they've they've been basically guinea pigs in an experiment that adults, people like me in tech have been running about the limits of tech. And there's a whole generation of kids who've suffered from the downsides of the fact that a lot of the big technology companies have deliberately designed their their services, the experiences to be addictive. It's all sort of being gamified. This is the, the terminology that people in the industry use. You know, technology has been turned into a game. There's all sorts of rewards. It's like a sort of casino based model. And we can see if, if you, you know, I'm sure a lot of people uh, are either suffering from this or parents seeing their kids suffering from this. And this is a big problem. And, and I think this is the, in terms of the psychology, uh, the psychological aspect of, of technology, this is a, a problem that we're only beginning to understand and address and acknowledge now. Uh, but I think is a big challenge that we have to, we have to face and we have to try and think about how we keep the, 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 the positive side of this tech, but not allow ourselves to be destroyed in the process. Well, what specifically is tech hurting in our society? Do you think it's not? You know, I'm not asking like the particular tech itself, but um, what do you see as uh, on a downward or worsening trend in our society because of tech? Well, I think I think you know, d- double clicking on this notion of kids and social media in particular. You know, think about it for a second. We we don't allow kids to drive a car. Uh, we don't allow kids to drink or to smoke or to join the army, or to vote, or to get married, but we allow 12, 13, 14-year-olds to have access to the most powerful technologies 
ever created by mankind and deliberately created to be addictive. And so there's a generation of kids who are basically caught up in this matrix of their phones who, who are suffering from that. Some of the things I said already, you know, suicide rates have exploded, have gone off the charts in the last generation because there's a generation of kids who are exclusively living in their phones, exclusively uh, being exposed to the worst aspects of human nature, Um, just just raw filth. I mean, let's not put too fine a point on it, you know, poached in porn, uh, as as I put it. and um, yeah, this is a huge problem. Uh, and the, there are an increasing number of voices, not just sort of older voices, people like me, but young kids who are saying, you know, I, I just can't take this anymore. I need to get out of this. But it's very hard for an individual kid to sort of go off the network, to drop away from it, because then they become a, a sort of social outcast. Uh, and so in different parts of the world now, there are movements afoot to try and introduce an age limit into social media and this is one of the things we call for in our book is we think there should be an age limit of 18 uh you know similar to driving or or drinking or voting you know you've we've got to we've got to train young people we've got to uh teach them how to use these technologies in a in a you know you know what might be, might be interesting is um, yeah. you talked about an age limit. I could see that, but it would be interesting, like, even if we, even if a user wanted to pay a social media platform a nominal amount, and that platform would allow them a certain amount of time in a 24-hour period to use it, and then it would block them after that until the next 24-hour period starts. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. That could be a way to help mitigate exposure. Yeah, that's another approach. And and in fact, the, our book is sort of apolitical. We're not trying to, you know, we're not coming at this from a political perspective. We're not coming at this from a geopolitical perspective. But that's exactly what the Chinese government are beginning to introduce for kids in China. There's going to be a time limit for kids to be on phones and to be on e-gaming platforms. The UK Minister of Children, there's a a cabinet-level minister for children in the UK government, this weekend was talking about this and saying we've got to police, we've got to have an age limit, and the social media platforms and all tech platforms have got to work with governments to introduce age limits because... You know, a generation of kids raised on porn, it's just not a good thing. I mean, I don't think I need to debate that. Um, it's just not a bad, it's not a good thing. And um, 
again, I think the more you look at this, the more you're tuned into this, the more examples you see of this. And one one little example I'll give you, Richard. Um, I saw about a year ago an essay written by a, a kid applying to college here in the U.S., one of these supplemental essays that um, kids have to write along with kind of submitting their GPA and everything. Uh, and it was a clever question that the college was asking. It was a college based in DC. So there was a kind of um, slightly political kind of angle on it, but it was, if you could advise a politician in Washington on one thing that could make the world a better place, what would it be? And this essay written by a kid, 17 year old was, all around cancelling social media. He said that this has destroyed his generation. Kids can hardly talk to each other now. They can't look up. They Everybody goes out and everybody's literally on their phone the whole time. He says it's disastrous. And he said, this kid said, I want to get away from it. I just can't stand this. But I can't get away from it on my own because everybody else is on it. How do I do that? You may have guessed already the punchline to this. This is a, this is something my kid, my my kid, my son, my seventeen year old wrote, and I hadn't brainwashed him into saying this. I hadn't kind of coached him. He wasn't even aware I was writing this book. But this is what he was saying. This is what he was expressing. Just this um, feeling of hopelessness that his whole life is just completely sucked into this machine and. And I, I frankly um, feel guilty about that because I've been a tech evangelist. I was, you know, one of the people talking about iPhones and you know, cloud computing very early on, saying how cool this all was. But I can just see the impact it's had on my own family, on other other people's families, on a generation of kids who are just completely addicted to these things. And, you know, addiction, any addiction is not a good thing. Yeah, I see, you know, <clears throat> similar issues with my own kids and my own family, and it's it's very difficult. Are there are there tools out there right now that do restrict based on time or age or other factors? Well, there are there are an increasing uh, array of different tools coming out. I mean, there are the ones from the big uh, companies like Disney. I mean, uh, Disney have a whole series of uh, parental controls that you can. Uh, leverage through an app onto a phone. Um, some of the gaming platforms are going to be introducing that. But I think there's a long way to go. Uh, there's a whole new generation of um, technology emerging. I, I don't know if you've heard of the Light Phone, but this is a new phone that's been launched recently, and it deliberately doesn't have any social media on it. You can make a phone call on it. You can look at GPS on it. Uh, you can send a message, a text message on it, but you can't go on the social media platforms on it. So I think there are all, all sorts of different solutions emerging. They're still in their infancy and they're only really going to get traction as more people talk about um, the underlying issue, acknowledge there's a problem here. You know, in, in acknowledging that, then we'll begin to find solutions for it. So that's what we feel our book is, you know, contribution, small contribution we're trying to make. Is to is to bring this issue, you know, out from the kitchen table where you may have talked about it with your partner and said this is crazy that we can't sit and have a dinner with our kids now because everyone's just looking at their phone, um, you know, to bring that sort of micro conversation that lots of people are feeling and lots of people are having around the world, try to bring that out into the open and say, look, we have got a problem and we need to do something about it. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
Have you um, seen fermentation by individual families or have you tried yourself in writing your book? And what, you know, what have you tried that's worked but didn't work? <laughs> yeah. Well, the last chapter of our book is called Off. And it's where Paul, my co-author, and I, we sort of debate this, whether we're we're going to be able to turn this stuff off or not. And I I think, again, there's a growing niche of people who are doing things like digital Sabbaths, if if you've heard of that phrase, where they are deliberately turning their phone off on a Saturday or a Sunday or a Friday, maybe for a whole week again, trying to put this thing down. And I I think a lot more people are going to be doing that. And again, I'm encouraged. I I try and do that. I I try and spend much less time. You know, I'm pretty wired during the week, but on the weekends, I try and put my phone down, uh, walk away from it. Um, What's that like for you when you put it down? Do you feel like a sense of loss or yearning for an hour or two? Yeah, that's the nature of addiction, isn't it? When you when you you want to scratch that itch, you want to pick it up, you want to look at it, you want to get that dopamine dopamine hit. Uh, again, the 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 key to curing overcoming an addiction is being conscious of it and being able to fight that itch and being able to say, I I acknowledge you feel that itch, but then to intentionally and consciously declare that you're not going to do that so that's what i do and um it is crazy that it is at that level where it is that addictive itch which is very hard to very hard to ignore so um i think more and more people are going to do that again it's a small kind of somewhat you know eccentric niche at the moment of people who do do that and i think again i feel motivated and sort of energized to talk about this because i've seen in my own life and with my own kids and I feel guilty because I bought them phones when they were 12 years old and overrode my wife's objections to doing that. I've seen how completely this has come to dominate uh, their lives and our family's life in a, in a, in a, you know, frankly, not positive way. Um, I don't know whether you saw Bill Maher a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about this and he did his kind of, you know, last rant he does in the show all about this. And he was saying, well, you know, people used to say this about TV and maybe people used to, you know, generation before that, people used to say this about radios and stuff. But as he quite rightly points out, this is so much more extreme, so much more intense than the experience, you know, you or I had when in the 70s or 80s when we were kids watching TV. This is so intense. It's so it's just in a different league of intensity for children today. And the damage I think it's doing is uh, similarly in a different league. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you could kind of watch TV in bed, but you couldn't have it in bed with you. And same thing with radio and you couldn't take it everywhere you go in your pocket. It wasn't yeah, in that, the bathroom, that, that, in the that, stall, it wasn't yeah. everywhere. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's what Bill Maher said. It was funny. I mean, you know, he put it in a funny way. I mean, yeah, you, you could watch TV in the evenings for two or three hours or something, but then you'd go to bed and you wouldn't have the, the TV in the bed and be watching the TV until four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning when you had to get up to school. And then you wonder why your kid is completely drained and washed out in the morning for school. And, and and again, the double-edged sword of this, the double-edged nature of this technology issue is that, you know, so many kids in the last 18 months have basically just sort of been lying in bed, you know, on a Zoom class, seemingly on a Zoom class, but really they've been on Instagram or TikTok. And the teacher is struggling to compete with that you know, constant drip of uh, of entertainment and amusement and, you know, Again, is that good for our kids? Is that good for a generation of kids who've been brought up in this 
completely unprecedented, crazy way. I, I don't think it is. Are there little things that people can do? Like, you know, uh, have your teenager turn off all notifications in their phone, except for um, just phone calls. And would that be a small step? Again, I think that this generation, uh, you, you can't put this genie back into the bottle. I mean, you can't, you, I mean, a parent of a 15 year old or 16 year old nowadays, you know, the, you can't, you can't mandate that. You can't, you know, if you try turning the Wi-Fi off in the house, you're going to, you know, have, it's going to be a third world war in your, in your house that evening. And, and uh, most parents don't, you know, don't want to fight that war after a long day at work and they're sitting back trying to relax themselves. No, I, I think again, the, the notion of introducing an age limit is really for the next generation generation of kids i mean i certainly say to my colleagues or friends or people i meet at you know when, on my travels my work travels i say if you've got a nine-year-old a ten-year-old kid or a five-year-old kid now try and keep your kid away from this stuff for as long as you can don't get them a phone at 10 or 11 or 12 try and keep them you know away from this as long as you can because i think hopefully i mean the best case scenario in our book and in our analysis and thinking is that these sorts of age limit ideas gain traction in the next few years politically and there's some sort of constituency of people that, that politically run on this ticket and we may in time see that but in the meantime uh, while we're waiting for that and you know it may take a while I'm, I'm not naive about this there's a huge amount of lobbying power amongst the tech companies to uh, to, to not make that happen uh, it, it, you know, so while we're waiting for that to happen individually as a parent, I would absolutely try and keep my kid. If I, if I could rerun, rewind the clock to when my own kids, you know, 10 years or so ago were, were 12, I would absolutely try and keep them away from tech as long as I possibly could. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm in the same position as you. It's, uh, once they have them, it's, it's very difficult. I remember before they had them, they would harass us constantly. Can I use your phone? Can I use your phone? And yeah, yeah. It all again, kinds of like pushes you towards saying, I'll yeah, just get you and, wrong. And we, we, you know, parents of our age, you know, I'm assuming are sort of rough, roughly similar age to me, but we lost this battle. As I say, the reason I feel guilty is because I was one of the proponents you know, the evangelists of the tech in the first place, how cool this was. And that first text you got from your little, you know, daughter, how cute that was. And you didn't realize that that one text was going to turn into, I don't know, a million Snapchats a year or some, some ridiculous number. I mean, I asked my kid one time how many Snapchats he sends on a, in an average day. And it was just shocking and it was just horrifying. I mean, funny. Well, I've, heard, and, I've heard with uh, girls, they'll take sometimes dozens of selfies a day to make sure that they're looking and they want to look and they share yeah, them. And I mean, it seems uh, like for girls, it's, it's worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It absolutely is. And the, and the sexualization and pornification of a generation of young girls. I mean, again, it's shocking and, and horrifying. And uh, I, I don't know whether you, I'm sure you've seen this when you, you know, out at a pre COVID, you're at a, at a concert or an event. I remember we were at a Broadway show and there was just this, I think it was Hamilton and there was this <laughs> group of girls mid-teen girls a few rows in front of us and literally up to the second the the show started all they were doing was standing you know with their backs towards the stage just taking selfies of them and pulling all of these um instagram faces 
model faces. I mean, it was just horrifying, really. And again, you can yeah. laugh at it. You can laugh at it and think, oh, that's stupid and dumb. But that that's the culture now of a generation of kids, of young kids. And as you say, for, for many, many young women, that's fine. It's not such a big deal. But there's a significant percentage of, of young women who are, are struggling with that. And this whole notion of body dysmorphia, I mean, again, is a real phenomena, which is uh, horrifying. One of the, another horrifying anecdote, Richard, I, um, again, the, in the pre-COVID days, the travel days, I remember I was sitting on a plane flying from Logan, Boston, near where I live, to San Francisco. So it's, you know, it's a cross-country six-hour flight. And there was a couple, young couple with a young child, must, the kid must was standing up, but so it was probably, you know, 15 months old or something. And, you know, initially I sort of I saw this out of the corner of my eye and then I began to notice it and and sort of uh, really caught my attention and eventually I took a photo of it in a non-stalky way but this young couple spent this six-hour flight with their kid their 15-year-old beautiful little angel kid standing in front of them and the whole time they were just glued to their phone and they they hardly paid any attention to the kid, and the kid was an annoyance because you know it was trying to get attention, and no, the kid the, the adults wanted to be on their phone. Think about what that means. Again, it's a, a silly little kind of anecdote, but think about a generation of kids, young children, very young babies that are fighting for attention, their parents' attention that they you know so you know, desperately need and so important for their development, and they're fighting for that attention with a phone and they're looking up at the the back of the phone is in between is in their uh, you know line of sight between them and their parents again i i just think that's horrifying and shocking and it's going to have all sorts of consequences down the road on the development of that individual child and a whole generation of children which again i don't think is positive yeah no i agree have you heard any really good ideas out there in addition to age limits, anything else that jumps out at you, whether it's practical or not? Frankly, no. I mean, frankly, this book is our attempt to offer some ideas, ideas like, you know, an age limit, like a social media user license akin to having a driver, a driver license and training and education in the same way that, you know, before a kid can drive a car itself, it's taught by adults how to drive that thing, teach kids how to use this technology safely and and we need to discuss with kids some of the sort of these philosophical issues that we're discussing around how you represent yourself online how you treat other people online how you uh behave online uh i mean one of the one of the other things we call for on the book is um an end to anonymity on social media this again is one of the sort of underlying fundamental design flaws in social media is that people say the most awful you know goddamn awful things to each other because they're anonymous things that were never say face to face to to a real person people say awful things and so we call for a, a ban on anonymity and for profit social media platforms so no there are there aren't a lot of good ideas i mean there are a beginning you know you've probably seen the social dilemma movie on netflix from tristan harris yep. You know, there are the beginnings, there are the stirrings of, of people beginning to make this argument. But in terms of practical solutions, no, there aren't a lot. Uh, and that's why we think our book is 
you know, is worth checking out because it's got some of those practical solutions and they're, and they're both legislative ones that politicians are going to, you know, have to be involved in, in deploying things like a, an age limit, but they're also cultural things. They're also, um, remembering the golden rule. You know, the, we're talking about very modern times, but the, the most important rule is the, is the most ancient rule of, of, you know, doing to others as, as you would have done, done unto you. People, there's a generation of kids, a generation of people who've forgotten that and who don't manifest that in the way they conduct themselves online. And we need to reteach people or, you know, or teach them for the first time, things like that. So, yeah, so no, we think that the book is sort of breaking some ice in a way and it's particularly you know particularly noteworthy that you know, I work for a big technology services company and, and some people have said to me why would a big technology services company want to talk about these things and it's because coming back to what I said initially you know I love technology I don't want to I don't want to kill technology I don't really want to take off but I just want to manage it I want to tame it as the title of the book suggests so we can leverage its power but not be not be swallowed by its power are there any, um, again, examples of either nations or schools or workplaces or, you know, again, companies that, that have this, um, I'm just making this up like a badge of being socially responsible in how they roll out their technology, you know, to the world? Have you heard any yeah, talk of that? No, it's, a great, it's a great question. I mean, there are stirrings of that. There are individual school districts in the U.S. that are beginning to do that, beginning to have lessons in social media usage. Um, obviously, there are regulations beginning to emerge in different parts of the world. GDPR is one of them. The the example of the um, thinking coming out of the UK uh, from the Minister of Children and and how um, technology platforms are regulated. There's, as I said, in China, there's a great focus on this now. But they're all pretty much in their early stages. They're all pretty much still kind of baby steps in trying to do this. We're very early in the process of this process. This is going to take a while to, to roll out. Um, so it's hard to say, it's hard to point at, you know, the school district in, uh, you know, Nowheresville, Arizona has got this right. That, that hasn't, we haven't, that hasn't come to my attention yet. That there's one school district or one university campus. Well, I was going to say, since you wrote your book, maybe you should come up with like the Pring scale or the, you know, the Pring whatever method uh, with four or five or six precepts yeah, that, yeah. you know, a company could say, like, if I follow yeah. the Pring, Pring method, then we're considered socially responsible, you know, to children. I love I love that. I mean, the book, you know, has a manifesto element to it. It's got a series of recommendations. And the book is not all I, I should say. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of all clicking on the sociological and the psychological aspect of this We The book really talks about different aspects of the, the role that technology and, you know, next generation machines, artificial intelligence is playing in society and in, in, in the world. So, you know, some of the some of the recommendations, some of the ideas in the book are much broader, more macro. We we call for the establishment of a federal technology administration, similar to the FDA, the role the FDA plays in the regulation of food and pharmaceuticals. There isn't really a, a body that's regulating technology in, in that. What we we call for, for for something like that. We call for the um, the introduction of import regulations on data 
in, in the book. If you think about BMW, if they build a car in Germany and they want to ship it into the US, there's a whole kind of uh, infrastructure regulations and customs that they have to comply with to ship that car into the US. But um, anybody can ship information, data from anywhere into the US uh, without any regulation at all. And, you know, that can be fine, but it, it can also be troll farms um, saying Biden uh, he died and Biden lied, you know, which is happening in real time right now. So the book really tries to cover a lot of ground. Uh, the specs are really just one, you know, one pixel in a, in a, in a bigger picture. Do you think this is a problem that will require government oversight or can it be left to individuals or at least lower level organizations to, to set up rules that would help people to police themselves? I know it hasn't happened so far. Maybe it's foolish to expect it will. No, no, what do you think it's going to take? No, it's definitely going to require politicians, re- regulations, laws to, to be affected. I mean, you just use the, the phrase, the rules of the road. And, you know, one metaphor I have in my mind is, you know, if you, if you look at a picture of a main street in, you know, uh, in America, anywhere in America, a main street in, say, 1925, 1930, if you look at a picture, you'll see lots of cars, lots of automobiles, are already on the streets of, you know, you know, Hicksville, USA. What you won't see is any traffic lights, any road trees, any yield signs, any road markings, any traffic islands. You won't see any of the infrastructure of safety on the road. So we've got the car, we've got the road, we've got no rules of the road, basically. If you look at a picture of the same main street, in 1955, or certainly 1965, you will see all of those things. There are traffic lights, stop signs, yield signs, road markings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, between you know 35 and 55, America has regulated the road. Think about the information superhighway, Al Gore's information superhighway, aka the internet. We have spent the last 25 years laying that tarmac adam, and we're all moving down it at 200, 300 miles an hour. But there's no stop signs. There's no yield signs. There's no rules of the road. I think the story of the next 10, 20 years is that we put in place the regulations to keep us safe on the information superhighway, including some of the things we've talked about already, to keep us safe and to, to allow us to use the power of the technology, but not sort of kill ourselves individually or uh, you know all of ourselves collectively in the process of doing that. And and so you know some people, some of the libertarian and rand <laughs> you know wing of the political spectrum say, oh we can't regulate tech, tech's too it's 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 the 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 goose that keeps on giving you know we can't regulate this thing there was a certain logic to that when the internet was this tiny little acorn in the forest but now the internet is the biggest sequoia in the forest and the notion that we can't regulate this we can't manage it we can't create rules for how we use this technology to me is just absurd and illogical. And so, yeah, I think you will see um, regulators, politicians increasingly stepping forward. And I think that will be a good thing. And, and we as citizens all have a role in being involved in that process to be able to create the rules of the road that, that we will all benefit from. Can you tell that your uh, brain has changed over the past like 10, 15 years? I feel like mine has, like I've become more fragmented 
it's harder for me to pay attention. I get distracted more easily. What about yourself? I, I certainly recognize that because I recognized this early, I fought it individually quite hard. And part of it is, is, you know, going off the technology. Part of it is reading. I mean, I, I deliberately try and read as much as I can away from my phone. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I regard reading as almost meditation. So I'll read for an hour, an hour and a half, first thing in the morning, just to calm my mind. But I absolutely recognize what you're, you, you were saying, Richard. And I think that's the, that's the experience that the majority of people ha- are having. Their, their attention spans have shortened and they're more um, volatile. They're more kind of wired the whole time. It's harder to, it's harder to sleep at night. It's harder to put the phone down. No. And I think again, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing maybe you can make an argument it's a good thing I don't think it is a good thing frankly and I think a lot of people probably can cope with that and it's just a minor irritation in their day-to-day life but for a lot of people it's just it's taking them down the QAnon rabbit hole and they're landing up in these weird mad places because they've they've you know literally gone down that rabbit hole that algorithmically driven rabbit hole and it takes them to a point of of craziness and that kind of craziness you know, exploded onto our TV screens on January the 6th. Uh, and again, I don't, I don't think we stand by and just allow that to happen and say, oh, that's just the modern world and we've got to put up with it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So what's the best way for people to engage with you? Should they buy the book Monster or is there another way that you prefer? Yeah, no, I mean, people can find the book on the usual uh, uh, platforms to buy this. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty visible online at Benjamin Pring on Twitter and uh the, the group that are in the Center for the Future of Work at Cognizant, that's quite uh, visible online as well. So people can just search for Center for the Future of Work. And yeah, they'll see lots of the uh, the research that we do. We talk about lots of different aspects, not just this. And uh, yeah, love love people to reach out and uh, chat to them further. Well, very good. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. It was great talking to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.